Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and I'm here today with Maitha Green Mercado, Assistant Professor of History at Rutgers University, to talk about visions of deliverance, moriscos, and the politics of prophecy in the early modern Mediterranean, out 2019 from Cornell University Press. Hello, Maitha, and welcome. Hi, Yana. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, thanks. I'm so glad you could join me. How are things in Newark? How's your uh, How's your semester going? Uh, we're We're online. We don't know when we're going to go back uh, to the classroom. Mm-hmm. So, as everyone else uh, teaching virtually, things are rough, but they're okay. Yeah, right on. Um, it's, I'm so tired of it, but it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. You know, we, we, spring is right around the corner. We're almost, uh, out of this, hopefully with vaccines. And <laughs> yes, so I don't know that it's looking brighter. The future is looking a little bit brighter. Absolutely. Well, and no, even if it wasn't, you have to say that, even if it weren't, we can't live like this. We can't, <laughs> live, we can't live in like cranky people forever. We have to be hopeful. Um, yeah, and March is a March is a cruel month. Maybe mm-hmm. not as cruel as April, but pretty bad. Yeah. But we're this. Our conversation today will be a bright spot. So uh, let's get started. All right. So the first thing I want to do is put this work in your personal academic intellectual trajectory. So this is your dissertation or your revision of your dissertation, correct? It is. Yes. It Excellent. is. Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a couple of questions here, like how did you become interested in the early modern era and the med, mm-hmm. um, and then this topic specifically. So how did you come to write this book? It's, inter- it's an interesting question uh, because I, as an undergraduate, um, I studied at the University of Puerto Rico, and I was interested in medieval Italian history. Um, I thought that was what I was going to do. Um, uh, for a PhD, and I had the opportunity to go to the University of Chicago. Um, and the way I ended up uh, studying this subject is um, kind of odd. I, When I was in Puerto Rico, there was a very active uh, and very important group in the Department of Hispanic Studies uh, that was studying uh, moriscos and aljamiado literature, and we will talk about this more, hopefully, in a little bit. Um, but I didn't know about it then because I was interested in Italy and in uh, medieval history. I went to Chicago, and um, and I took a course uh, that really changed uh, the course of my intellectual trajectory. It was a course taught by um, a historian of religion, Bruce Lincoln, and if you read the book, Bruce Lincoln's uh, ideas really influenced and shaped the way that I think about uh, religion in general and uh, society. But he was teaching a course titled Oracles, Divination, and Magic, and I had to write a paper uh, for his uh, course, and I ended up uh, doing research on uh, Morisco magical practices. I didn't know about Moriscos. Again, there was this active group in Puerto Rico that I didn't know about. So little by little, I ended up uh, studying more and more about Moriscos and decided that I really needed to focus on this um, as a, a course of study for my, for my PhD. 
Um, and I didn't know anything about Islam. I didn't know anything about uh, the Arabic language. And so I decided that instead of uh, doing the PhD training through the history department, I was going to do it in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. I was very fortunate that I was accepted into the PhD program there. And uh, and then I, it took years and years of training in um, Arabic and in um, and in um, in Islamic history uh, to get to write this book. Um, and so I, when I was at uh, in that department, I really didn't have any uh, interlocutors that who were working specifically on. Moriscos, or even the history of the Islamic West. Um, and so this kind of forced me to have uh, conversations and work with people in other fields in Islamic studies, especially people who were focusing on the Eastern Islamic lands. And I ended up working with an Ottomanist, uh, Professor Cornell Fleischer. Um, and this was the best thing that could have happened to me because that's where I ended up getting to the Mediterranean. Um, I um, in in um, Moriscos had tended to be studied either as in Puerto Rico, uh, looking at uh, Aljamiado texts and from a literary perspective, or people. Um, who were studying Moriscos from the perspective of the history of early modern Spain. Um, and so I wasn't doing either of those. I had decided as a historian to study the history of the Moriscos, but from an Islamist perspective. And so it these conversations with my colleagues who were Ottomanists and people working uh, in working on uh, early modern Iran, uh, et cetera, uh, made me pay attention to the contacts that Moriscos may have had with other Islamic powers, uh, particularly in the Mediterranean, in North Africa, and as far as um, the, the Ottoman Empire in, in the East, of course, in what is today Turkey. And so um, my trajectory was kind of random. You know, I could have started studying this when I was an undergraduate in Puerto Rico, uh, but it took me going to Chicago and taking a course that was not what I would have uh, taken to get to this uh, topic. And then afterwards, after once I was, once I started uh, working on Moriscos, I ended up going back to the University of Puerto Rico and, and um, getting in touch with all of the people there, which was really wonderful. Sure. Yeah, I mean, because the Arabic is, uh, that's a steep curve, right? That's a steep it, learning curve. Yes, yes. It was a very steep learning curve for me in particular, because a lot of the my colleagues who were uh, students in uh, the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations were native speakers of some uh, Middle Eastern language. They were uh, Turkish uh, speakers or Persian speakers or Arabic speakers. And I really did not have any background in that. I had studied Latin and I had studied Italian um, mm -hmm. and I was studying some French, um, but I didn't have any background. So I started from scratch. I was very uh, uh, fortunate to have had the most wonderful uh, professor of Arabic, uh, who was a Spaniard, uh, coincidentally, 
And, um, and I studied with her for about three years, and then I continued studying Arabic. But I really started from zero. I started from scratch. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, you're, like picking up Spanish, if you're an Italian speaker, vice versa, you know, with no problem. Right, right exactly. Like, such an easy jump. And then there's this completely different situation. Right, right. Congratulations. Kudos to you. That is impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. I, oh, man. I, I don't know. Maybe that might be my next one. But first, I have to conquer Dutch. So this may be the last. Like, who, who could say? All right. So let's um, just to make sure we're all on the same page, historically speaking, um, I want to make sure our audience understands what we're talking about. So can you tell us what a morisco is? Moriscos were... Spanish Muslims and their descendants who were forced to convert to Christianity, to Catholicism, beginning in 1501. The process of conversion of these populations in the Iberian Peninsula took place at different times. Um, In Castile, for example, uh, these Muslims were, were forced to convert as a result of a Um, rebellion that took place in the kingdom of Granada um, in beginning in 1498. Um, As punishment for that rebellion, the Muslim populations were told that they should either convert or leave the peninsula. And um, this didn't only apply to the Muslim populations uh, that were known as Mudejars, um, in uh, the kingdom of Granada, but all of the kingdom of Castile. Now, there were Muslims living in other kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula. We have to imagine that the Iberian Peninsula in the 15th century is comprised of d- separate kingdoms, Portugal, Castile, Aragon, uh, Valencia. Um, and the Muslim populations of the kingdoms of Valencia and Aragon were not forced to convert until later, until when the the initial conversion of Muslims took place under the kings Ferdinand and Isabella, the famous Ferdinand and Isabella, who took over Granada. Um, The conversion of the Muslim populations of the kingdoms of Valencia and Aragon took place under King Charles V, and this began in the year 1519, 1520. By 1525-26, all of the Muslim populations of the Iberian Peninsula um, were had com- been converted to Christianity, and those who had not converted had left. Okay. Yeah, um, just for everyone who's listening, remember that there is the conquest of uh, of Granada in 711. And so from 711 until 1492, there is a there is a government that is Muslim in Spain, as well as a sizable Christian population and a sizable Jewish population. And then in 1492, this all kind of comes crashing to an end. Right. In, in the in beginning, I would say in the um, 11th, 12th centuries, we begin to see Christian kingdoms uh, in the north that begin conquering Muslim uh, territory. Um, the only Muslim uh, kingdom left after the 13th century um, was the kingdom of Granada um, in southern Spain. Um, and so by the 13th century, uh, Muslims had 
mostly lost uh, their control of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, and those populations uh, that were conquered, these Muslim populations and also Jewish populations that were conquered were known as Mudejares. Um, so uh, so this is what we have in the Iberian, the picture that we have in the Iberian Peninsula up to 1492 when Fort Ferdinand and Isabella conquer uh, the kingdom of Granada. And uh, the process of conversion of these populations took place uh, several years later. Um, our sources, our Morisco sources, um, or some of our Morisco sources, uh, claim that uh, these populations never really accepted the conversion. And our Christian sources, many of our Christian sources, accused uh, Moriscos of not having converted to Catholicism sincerely. Of course, um, we can't uh, know whether the com conversion was sincere or not. Uh, but this is some one of the issues that this book explores. Um, it focuses specifically on those Morisco populations that still saw themselves as Muslims and that tried to recover that identity, Muslim identity, um, that they felt they had. So it's a sort of a creation or a recreation of a Muslim identity. So I'm not, this book is not a, a book that studies um, all types of Moriscos, but a very particular kind of Morisco that identified itself as Muslim or crypto-Muslim. Okay. And that's something that we should highlight. And it's that when we talk about Moriscos, and I should say that the term Morisco is a derogatory a term that means something like little more. Um, so it's a, a derogatory term. Um, but when we speak of moriscos, we can't speak of one morisco. We need to uh, take into account uh, both uh, local and regional historical processes and also, of course, individual uh, stories. Um, so some Moriscos, for example, uh, spoke Arabic. Some Moriscos, uh, and this is in particular in Granada, uh, which was the population that was uh, conquered, uh, the Muslim population that was conquered uh, the late, the, at the, you know, the, in the 15th century, in the late 15th century. And um, in Valencia, some Moriscos spoke Arabic. But Moriscos, for example, in Castile or Aragon had lost their ability to speak Arabic and had adopted the languages, the local languages where they were living. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so... There, I mean, there's a rich, rich, highly contested historiography um, arguing kind of the nature of identity in medieval and early modern Spain. Yes, um, right. And so, you, clearly, this this speaks to that. But um, I'm I'm curious about kind of the other the historiographical holes you saw here that you're trying to fill. Right. Um, so one of I'm I'm kind of coming as I mentioned before. Um, sort of in between fields, Moriscos um, have been studied from uh, a literary perspective. So their uh, writings 
are um, studied. Um, and then they were stead- they had been uh, up to the moment when I was um, started training, uh, studied primarily by historians, primarily from uh, the perspective of the history of Spain. Um, and so, as I as I mentioned before, I wanted to uh, look at them from uh, the perspective of the wider history of Islamic civilization. And so, I think that this work is making an intervention there. On the one hand, it is sort of um, focusing on the uh, Muslim past mm-hmm. of Moriscos. And at the same time, um, I am also very interested in locating Moriscos within the broader history of Islamic civilization, which is something that when you look at any textbook of Islamic civilizations, civilization, Moriscos are never mentioned. And so it's also telling Islamicists, look, this is also part of the history of Islamic civilization. Um, And I think that's really important. And then the third intervention that I think I am making is um, looking at Moriscos from a Mediterranean perspective. Mm -hmm. And when I started this work, they really hadn't, that hadn't happened. In recent years, we have seen an increasing output, scholarly output of looking at Moriscos in the Mediterranean. But when I started this work, this was actually something quite new. And when you look at the Moriscos outside of the Iberian Peninsula um, and in a wider Islamic and Mediterranean context, one of the things that we see is sort of a recovery of a Morisco agency. Because when we look at Moriscos from the perspective of the Iberian Peninsula, and actually from a literary perspective, uh, one of the things that you kind of come away with is the idea of a persecuted minority, right? Um, A minority that was forced to convert and to assimilate into the dominant um, Catholic culture. And so um, we see a... um, a history that where Moriscos, in a way, lose agency. But when we start looking at the connections that they had with the broader Islamic and Mediterranean world, in a way, this agency is recovered, and we see them as active participants in the political and the cultural and the intellectual life of their time, of the Mediterranean. And I think that's one of the things that I was very interested in exploring in this book. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, I see that. And it, it makes a contribution to, I mean, this, the idea of a broader Mediterranean world is uh, something that really still needs to be articulated more fully. Right. Um, you know, this is, there's a joint culture here, a very shared culture that I think the way we study history and the way we study the past from whatever field keeps us from really exploring Right. And and this is also making my book is also make it trying to make an intervention in in a way what we call sort of a new Mediterranean studies. Um, Mediter- the Mediterranean had been uh, um, studied, um, particularly since Brodel, um, as a field of study, I mean, um, really 
from a European perspective. And this mm-hmm. new Mediterranean studies is very much interested in looking at a connected Mediterranean and also uh, a perspective from uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and also the Southern Mediterranean and how the Eastern and Southern Mediterranean, if we can talk about an Islamic Mediterranean, what the contributions are. So not focusing necessarily on um, questions of uh, um, European imperial domination or colonization, um, but rather, especially when we look at the early modern Mediterranean, how in the 15th, or actually, yeah, in the 15th, 16th uh, centuries, um, the Islamic Mediterranean was uh, a a dominant um, presence in the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. culturally and politically and militarily. So it, I think for, especially for Europeanists, um, it's very important to uh, look at shift our way, the way in which we think about the Mediterranean um, and start really looking at the connections between different um, religious groups um, and the shared uh, culture. Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, Which actually, this is a a a funny question, but do you consider yourself an historian? Yes, I do very much so. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I am I'm 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 I've been trained as a historian, um but I work a lot with literary texts. I don't claim that I could ever analyze uh literary texts the way that my colleagues um uh, who are literary scholars do. I wish I could, but unfortunately that's not my training. But I try as much as I can to do justice to um, uh, t- to, to read uh, these literary texts as historical sources. So the, the main, uh, some of the main texts that I work with in this uh, book, which are um, prophecies and prognostications about the end times um, have been uh, studied within a a sort of a literary uh, perspective, but I try to look at them as historical sources and see what they can tell us about the ways in which Moriscos um, organized themselves, uh, constructed an identity, communicated with others in the Mediterranean, etc. Yeah, I I would say you're an historian too, which is (laughs) And I just wanted to, you know, see what, where you weighed in on this. Yeah. You've got your sources now, and I really want to talk about them. You've got fascinating, fabulous sources. So tell, tell us what you used. Okay. So um, I will say just a little bit about uh, what the book is about um, in general, and then that will lead me to talk about the sources. Okay. So um, this book, in what I try to do in this book is to... Um, I, I mentioned before that I had come to this topic through the work of literary scholars. Um, I I had read articles. Actually, one of the, the people I mentioned at the University of Puerto Rico is one of the most important uh, literary scholars on uh, Morisco literature. Her name is Luce Lopez Baralt. And I had read her articles on uh, these Morisco prophetic texts. These were uh, texts written in uh, what is known as Aljamiado. And Aljamiado is 
the rendering of uh, Romance languages, uh, Castilian, Aragonese, um, and other Romance languages into uh, in Arabic script. Um, so Moriscos, who had lost their uh, knowledge of the Arabic language, um, used the Arabic script to write in their native uh, language, Romance language. And so these prophecies were written in Aljamiado, and many of them talk about uh, or um, describe um, not only uh, what was happening to them, this process of conversion and assimilation, which they equate with the end of times, but also uh, it gave them sort of a hope uh, in a future redemption that at the end of times, God would take mercy on them and would uh, send someone uh, to save them and Islam would be recovered in the Iberian Peninsula. So these literary scholars looked at these texts as um, consolation, as a, a literature that was meant to console uh, moriscos and to help them make sense of uh, their present situation. It put in the mouth of the Prophet Muhammad all of the suffering that they were experiencing. So in these texts, uh, in some of these texts, the Prophet Muhammad foresees what will happen to his, his community at the end of times. And so as I was reading uh, these beautiful interpretations of these texts, I began to wonder how these texts circulated, whether Moriscos read these texts, whether they were aware of them, and the contexts in which they circulated. And this is what my book tries to reconstruct. So uh, the, I begin with this set of sources, with these uh, prophetic, uh, apocalyptic uh, texts written in El Hamiado. Sometimes uh, these texts are also written in Arabic. So depending on where they circulated in the Iberian Peninsula, in Valencia, we have these texts rendered in Arabic and in Granada also, and in other parts of the peninsula, they're written in El Hamiado. And okay. so I start with these. I started trying to see the contexts in which they uh, circulated. And I should say something else about uh, these texts that is quite interesting. So Moriscos drew from different sources in order to create uh, these apocalyptic prognostications. Um, I just mentioned the Prophet Muhammad. And so some of these, these texts are presented as uh, what are known as hadith. And hadith are um, sayings, actions, and tacit approvals of the Prophet Muhammad as they were recorded by his companions. And so some of these texts uh, put in the mouth of the Prophet Muhammad what will happen. It's, they, they are set as um, Muhammad sitting with his companions and one of his companions asking him to tell them what will happen to his community at the end of times. And then Muhammad kind of starts uh, his eyes uh, well with tears. And he starts saying that at the end of times, his community in the confines of the earth, this is Iberia and the Western Islamic lands are going to go through tribulations, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so this is one uh, set of um, sort of sources 
f- f- uh, that Maurice scores are drawing from. And this, there is a rich, um, uh, rich um, um, set of uh, apocalyptic uh, narratives that are attributed to Muhammad. So there's already that tradition that circulates. Mm-hmm. And then there's another set of sources that Moriscos are drawing from. And these are Christian apocalyptic sources that circulated in, uh, in the Middle Ages and uh, particularly in the uh, 14th and 15th centuries in the Iberian Peninsula and also in, um, in the rest of Europe. And they're attributed to... Um, John of Rupasissa, a famous um, uh, astrologer and um, and apocalyptist, and others. So again, Moriscos are drawing both from Christian material and from Islamic material and reinterpreting it according to their community's prerogatives. Okay, and so. Um, one of the ways in which I went about reconstructing the circulation of this material was by focusing on a very important set of sources for the history of Spain and the history of Europe in the early modern period, and these are Inquisition sources. So um, I was looking at cases, Inquisition cases, against Moriscos uh, that mentioned that mentioned anything about prophecies or apocalypticism. As I was doing this research, it was really like the process was really like looking for a needle in a haystack um, because uh, a lot of this material was not cataloged properly. And I was going through boxes and boxes of um, either uh, full dossiers, um, inquisition dossiers, or I was going through just uh, loose papers looking for any mention of moriscos and prophecies or apocalyptic stuff. Um, and it took years and years for this research, uh, for me to complete this research. But I was able to start reconstructing um, this, uh, the way that this material circulated because in this inqu- in these inquisition sources and um, for those who uh, don't know how the Spanish Inquisition operated, and of course the Inquisition was a religious tribunal that sought to investigate matters of faith. And so um, at times, Moriscos landed in the Inquisition um, because they were suspected of apostasy, of uh turning back on uh, Christianity and going back and practicing uh, their the religion of their fathers or grandfathers or grandmothers um, or uh, their old religion. So if they had been converted recently um, or it could have been the religion of their, their mothers and fathers. Um, but in any case, um, these moriscos sometimes were accused of or suspected of apostasy And uh, once they landed in the Inquisition, they had to offer a confession of all of their sins. And sometimes in these confessions, we hear the voices of Moriscos mentioning these prophecies, and that's where it gets super interesting. So so that allowed me to be able to start seeing 
how, where these texts circulated, when these texts circulated, and the contexts and how Moriscos uh, understood uh, these texts. Okay. So we have this body of primarily your, these, your, these body of texts. Are these, do these read like narratives? Are they stories? Are they just nonfiction, like in the end times? Da, 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 um, like? So some of them read, as I mentioned, some of them read as hadiths, uh, these yeah. sayings of Muhammad. Um, some of these, re- and in these, not only is Muhammad sort of saying what will happen at the end of times, but it all, it's also, it uh, reads like warnings, actually some of the warnings about the, the things that will happen at the end of times that we read in the Quran. Um, and then others read as um, narratives, yes. Uh, so th- for example, this is what uh, this person who is an expert in astrology said about what would happen at the end of times and then uh, when the sun starts stops shining when the mountains crumble that kind of thing um, is the way that these texts read i should also say about uh, uh, sources so inquisition sources and alhamiado uh, and arabic literature morisco literature are my main two sources but in order to be able to fully re- reconstruct this history i also used other types of sources such as diplomatic um, correspondence um, that mentioned moriscos or, or that mentioned prophecies. I also uh, use chronicles, uh, Christian chronicles, but I also look at um, um, Ottoman uh, material as well. So one of the things uh, doing uh, uh, doing Mediterranean, quote unquote. Um, uh, one of the challenges of doing Mediterranean studies is uh, that you have to work in many languages, use many sources from many different um, uh, languages. And so that is a real challenge in uh, doing Mediterranean studies. But I think that also allows us to look at Moriscos from a completely different perspective. Yeah, definitely. You've got so you, I mean, so you've got these this these this body of apocalyptic material, and then you're reading around them, so you can talk right. about how they're received, where they go, how they travel, right? And then that allows you then to create um to to posit a sort of Mediterranean identity. Yes, yes, I would very much say that moriscos are. Uh, very Mediterranean uh, in that sense. And they are really, once once you begin seeing the ways in which these texts circulated and the contexts and the content of this material, and you start looking outside of the Iberian Peninsula into the Mediterranean, you really see the Mediterranean-ness of moriscos. Um, so the content or the context sorry, in which these texts circulated uh, was in moments when Moriscos were attempting to stage uh, armed rebellions against the Spanish uh, monarchy, okay? Um, There's a very important moment in 1568 when Moriscos stage, Moriscos in Granada stage a two-year rebellion uh, known as the Revolt of the Alpujarras, um, 
against the king, uh, the uh, king uh, Philip II, and this sort of marks uh, a moment in the history of Moriscos where there will be um, subsequent attempts uh, to rebel. In order to do this, Moriscos tried to uh, seek for help um, outside of the Iberian Peninsula. They look uh, towards the east, towards the Ottomans. They also look towards North Africa, and they even look towards France. So enemies, any enemy uh, of uh, the Spanish monarchy that would be willing to help. Um, and in doing so, they appeal to prophecies, not only to galvanize support uh, within the Iberian Peninsula, uh, other Moriscos who were listening to this message um, and uh, saying, okay, this is the moment that we need to act because the end is near and at the end of times, this is what's going to happen. But they also use this discourse to appeal to the apocalyptic sensibilities of other people, particularly of um, uh, rulers in the Mediterranean who had messianic pretensions um, and who were familiar with uh, the language of the apocalypse um, in order to, to, to ask for support for their enterprise. So in a way... Uh, we can see apocalypticism in the early modern Mediterranean as a um, lingua franca of politics and religion, if you will, that is used by Muslims and Jews and Christians um, to articulate uh, religious expectations, but also political ambitions. And Moriscos are tapping into that um, in order to uh, get their political message across. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this, um, there are these moments where, uh, where this, you can, where this really kind of comes to the head, as you've mentioned, um, like talk to me about the impact of Lepanto, say. Um, okay. So this is, this is great. Uh, this is a great question uh, because one of the things that we see, um, in the early modern Mediterranean, and this is very well known, is this confrontation between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs uh, for the control of the Mediterranean. Um, and so one of the things that we see in the 16th century is uh, that the Ottoman threat um, that had been a very uh, uh, acute uh, for uh, European uh, Christendom, um, particularly after the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, uh, be becomes a reality in the uh, uh, early 16th century. By the time Lepanto comes around, so there's all these calls for a crusade against uh, the Ottoman threat. And um, once uh, Lepanto takes place, the Ottoman uh, threat has begun to wane, but Moriscos are still hoping that the Ottomans are still strong enough so that they will come to the Iberian Peninsula and will help them uh, in their enterprise. Lepanto um, 
is a moment where apocalyptic expectations are heightened. Um, and uh, once again, um, everyone around the Mediterranean is kind of looking at this battle and looking at this moment as one of the final battles of the end times. The Ottomans, of course, lose Lepanto, but quickly manage to kind of rebound and um, conquer Tunis. And so Morisco's um, uh, uh, hopes for an Ottoman intervention once again sort of get reignited with, uh, with this uh, conquest of Tunis. And so um, I would say that a lot of these battles that are taking place in the Mediterranean and this confrontation uh, between the Ottomans and uh, the Habsburgs and other uh, um, Christians that that becomes articulated in the language of Crusades is very much um, infused with uh, language of apocalypse. So there are different sort of uh, um, ideas uh, that are sort of uh, mixed into this. One is the idea of the emperor of the end of times. And so in this uh, confrontation with the Ottomans, different European uh, powers are presenting themselves as uh, the um, embodiment of the last Roman emperor. But the Ottomans can also claim that they are the last Roman emperors because they have conquered the last uh, um the last Roman Empire, which is the Byzantine Empire, and now they are the occupy. I mean, they 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 are the Caesars. Um, they uh, the empire has been transferred to them, and so we see all of this, uh, all of these ideas, getting interpreted in a language of apocalypse. And different people in the Mediterranean sort of using it, deploying it, recognizing it. And Moriscos are doing the same thing. That is so fascinating. I mean, this this pan-Mediterranean pan concern with who's Rome, yes. you know, all the way until the 16th century. That's so amazing. It really is. And I, there is a, one chapter in the book that explores this particular idea. Uh, it's titled Ottoman Rome. And we see how Moriscos, uh, Italians, uh, the Spanish are really worried about this, um, are looking at the threat and the real possibility that the Ottomans, after they conquer Constantinople, after they conquer second Rome, Constantinople will try to conquer first Rome, uh, Rome in Italy. And um, this is an idea that is circulating. And again, it's uh, apocalyptically infused, circulating not just uh, among Christians, but the Ottomans are also um, expressing these ideas. And there is a moment when the Ottomans have a lot of interest in actually conquering um, Rome and becoming the last Roman uh, emperor before the end of times. And so this is really a Mediterranean uh, phenomenon. Um, the, the idea of uh, a Mediterranean apocalypse is uh, an idea that one of the, the uh, 
the person I trained with, um, Cornell Fleischer at the University of Chicago, really started developing in the in the 90s. Um, and so he was very much interested in the ways in which uh, the Ottoman Empire um, sh- shared, influenced and was influenced by, but in particular influenced, uh, apocalyptic ideas in uh, Europe in the early uh, 16th century. And so for me, it was perfect because as I was training uh, as a graduate student, there wasn't anyone that I could uh, work with on uh, on moriscos until very late in my career when one person came to the University of Chicago. But he was already working on these ideas. So he was sort of the per- perfect match uh, mm-hmm. for me because I was interested in these ideas and he was working on these ideas. And through his uh, scholarship, it really opened up this whole new a uh, way of looking at Morisco apocalypticism that was very much Mediterranean, and I'm very much convinced of his uh, um, of his uh, idea that there was actually a Mediterranean apocalyptic phenomenon in the early 16th century. One of the interesting things is that uh, my work. I look at this phenomenon in sort of the second half of the 16th century. And so this is a very lasting uh, phenomenon that that begins, I would say, uh, in the mid-15th century and that extends all the way to uh, the beginning of the 17th century. Yeah, it's it's so I'm convinced as well. It's such an interesting. <laughs> um, we are closing in on the end of our time here, so I want to make sure we can talk about. I think it's chapter five that was so fun, which is when you're talking about uh, Gil Perez. Yes, uh, such a great chapter. Uh, so, can you tell our listeners about this guy and kind of how he exemplifies what you're trying to the argument you're putting forward? This guy is a character. He was a morisco. He was he's a character. He was a morisco, and he was a, an informant, a double agent, if you will, uh, that was uh, giving the Inquisition of Aragon information about alleged morisco rebellion plots, and at the same time, he was giving moriscos information about the Inquisition and how. The Inquisition was planning on targeting specific families. Um, And so one of the things that I argue in this uh, chapter is that we can look at the way in which um, Morisco apocalyptic ideas circulating by focusing on this character and his fabrication. So some of the information that Gil Perez begins to give the Inquisition is, again, this idea that the Moriscos of Aragón are planning to rebel, and this is taking place around 1580. Um, and, um, and he makes prophecy sort of a central element for the transmission of ideas about rebellion among Moriscos. Um, he says that he has attended meetings where Moriscos have been reading prophecies that talk about the end of times and that talk about how the Ottomans are going to come and help them. Um, and in a way, and the, the interesting thing though, is that while he was making up these this information, uh, about a possible uh, rebellion, 
there was, in fact, a plot that was taking place. So he was tapping into something that was happening, but he didn't have information because he was a, 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 a guy who wasn't really well connected at all. And the Moriscos of Aragon really uh, did not trust him. Um, and uh, But he had good knowledge of the way in which uh, Morisco society uh, worked and how these rebellion plots worked. So he was giving it to the information in order to collect money. Um, and so it's it's an interesting way of looking at this phenomenon uh, from the perspective of a fabrication of uh, information. And, uh, and I think that's what appealed to me. I want to say something, if I can, really quickly, uh, about the way in which I use these sources. Most, some of the chapters in this book are uh, micro histories. They center on specific inquisition cases. And in this case, the Hilperes case is a good example of the way in which the approach that I take in this book, the micro historical approach. And then other chapters, like the one that you were asking about Lepanto, which is uh, the Ottoman Rome chapter, uh, takes the approach, the methodological approach of connected histories. And so uh, this book goes from microhistory to macrohistory in uh, in sort of simultaneous ways, and it, it and I got this idea from um, uh, the historian uh, who really coined this term connected history, Sanjay Subrahmaniam, who is at UCLA who says something really nice, he puts it in a very nice way. He says something like, we cannot attempt at a macro history of a problem. And he's looking at apocalypticism as well, but in a broader Eurasian context, without muddying our boots in the bogs of micro history. <laughs> so, so in order to be able to understand this uh, larger Mediterranean phenomenon of apocalypticism, one of the ways in which we can approach it is precisely through a microhistorical approach, and that's what I try to do in this book. Yeah, well done. Um, and the me it's methodologically, the contrast there is very interesting, and I think it, it makes for a convincing book. Um, Thank, you. Thank you very much. And the microhistory is so fun, right? It's like you get this kind of character. I, you know, he's just someone I want to talk to. What were you thinking? <laughs> he was great. And then, so he he is finally... Uh, caught uh, in his lie. He was actually working with a younger guy. Um, they, they, they were. He was very smart. The other guy wasn't terribly uh, smart. But they're caught, and when they're finally caught by the Inquisition, lying, um, they are uh, going to be arrested. And then they have a plot to leave the Iberian Peninsula and try to go to Mecca in order to supposedly um, get a pardon for their sins. And so it, this way we see also sort of this typical Morisco who on the one hand is trying to be uh, very Muslim, but is also has all of these ideas about sin that are very Christian and about how sins can be for, forgiven. Um, and so he, they thought about going to Mecca and try to get forgiveness for their sins. Um, and of course, they ended up in the Inquisition. We don't really know 
what happens to Gil Perez after he's taken uh, by the Inquisition. But it is a really fascinating uh, story. And so some of the sources that I use and the cases that I look at in this book were already known. Um, But I did a lot of research to, and in this case in particular, the Gil Perez case was well known. I mean, not super well known, but was known already. But I did manage to find other Inquisition cases related to this uh, case that allowed me to look at this uh, phenomenon of Hilperes from other perspectives. So there's a lot of new research that was involved in in, uh, writing this book, but I also drew, I was fortunate enough to draw from already well-established and well-known cases. This is such a great one. And I mean, to your point as well, you the idea, you know, the way his worldview demonstrates kind of a, a conglomerate idea or a conglomerate identity. And then, you know, with the Inquisition and any criminal court, the the, the inquisitors have to buy what he's selling. Right. right. So this the, you, you see these this discussion between the two of them that we that gives us a demonstration of what is of the broader zeitgeist of the era. Right. Uh, the Inquisition yeah. desperately wanted to believe that the Moriscos were going to rebel. Um, and they were desperately trying to uh, get at the elites, Morisco elites, because they felt that the Morisco elites were the ones that were, quote unquote, Islamizing or re-Islamizing the community. I mean, of course, the this was also an important source of money for the Inquisition. If these rich Moriscos were taken, their properties were also taken. Um, and so there's a lot going on here. I don't want to get too cynical about it. Um, but uh the, Mori- the Inquisition wanted to believe that the Moriscos were going to rebel because they had done it once already in the Alpujar, in the time of the Alpujarras. Um, Gil Perez was very well aware of what the what the Inquisition wanted to hear. And so he started crafting his stories uh, to the Inquisitors with this knowledge of what they wanted. Um, but one of the things that the Gil Perez case uh, shows very clearly is the way in which Moriscos uh, were a very fractured community um, that um, not all Moriscos were uh, Muslim sympathizers, um, that there were Morisco elites and then poor Moriscos and that the elites were trying to shape the ways in which uh, the uh, less fortunate Moriscos uh, acted and saw themselves. And then it also tells us that Moriscos were very much part of the society in which they were living, Christian society in, the, in which they were living, and that they uh, managed their way around uh, uh, Christian society fairly well. Um, and a, a case like a man like Gil Perez is the perfect example. He was able to trick uh, the inquisitors who were already sort of ready to um, accept uh, uh, and believe anything that they could use against Moriscos, right? And so it tells right. us a story of a very fractured community as well. 
but I, an interesting unity about <laughs> cross-cultural unity seeking a battle for you know the the end of time. Exactly, exactly. And and the inquisitors knew very well also uh the way in which uh apocalyptic uh discourse worked and the dangers of apocalyptic discourse for galvanizing sort of a um support around um insurrections not just by uh Muslims or crypto Muslims, but also uh, the power of prophecy for Christians. So they all spoke the same language. Yeah. All right. So uh, this book, this is this is done between covers. So what uh, what's next? What are you working on now? So I have two parallel projects and I have to decide where it's going to go. Um, one of them that stems from this book is uh, has to do with Morisco displacements in the Mediterranean in the period before the expulsion of the Moriscos from the Iberian Peninsula in 1609. Um, so uh, it tries to look at uh, the ways in which um, Moriscos uh, left the Iberian Peninsula before the expulsion and the networks that they created between the Iberian Peninsula and uh, Moriscos outside of the Iberian Peninsula in Salonica and in other parts of the Ottoman world and North Africa. Um, and this is tied to a project that I'm currently developing at Rutgers uh, called the Mediterranean Displacements Project that looks at this phenomenon of displacement in the Mediterranean across time and space from uh, antiquity to the present. Um, and so that I'm developing right now. And then I have another uh, project that I'm developing um, that looks at prophecy and apocalyptic discourse as a form of diplomatic discourse in the late medieval and early modern Mediterranean. So the ways in which uh, um, ambassadors um, and uh, diplomats incorporated and used apocalyptic language in their diplomatic endeavors. Um, there are many, many examples that I am uh, looking at right now. And I think this is also an exciting project. So one still has to do with apocalypticism and the other one has to do with displacement. Um, yeah, and those, those speak. So that makes sense. That's <laughs> yeah. fast. And, there's sort of, and it's sort of really two, two aspects that really come out of the book uh, that could still be explored even more. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And both, both can have you working back in the mad when we're able to travel again. Exactly. That's the goal. <laughs> That's the goal. All right. Well, thank you. I have taken up quite enough of your time, but thank you so much for speaking to me today. Um, if, and I would love to talk to you. Oh, it was great. Further projects we'll discuss as well. Yes. All right. Take care. Thank you very much, Yana.